to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com thanks for tuning in sluts and scholars is a sex positive shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter while we love to give advice and resources please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta von Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I'm really excited to welcome Emily DePass. She is a writer and sexologist who is redefining the narratives around sexually transmitted infections, or STIs, and relationships. She holds a bachelor's in gender and sexuality studies and is in her final year at the same school that I went to um, at Widener, doing her master's of social work and her master's of education in human sexuality um, as a future sex therapist. Her writing has been featured in Women's Health, Teen Vogue, Bitch, and more, and she has a really fucking awesome social media presence that has great quotes and graphics, so definitely check her out at Sex Education. Welcome, Emily. Thanks, Nicoletta. It's so great to see you again. Nice to see you, too. We haven't, like, seen each other in person for many years, but I feel like we're following each other's journeys online. Same. So I remember the first time I met you, it was working at a conference that Widener puts together on uh, sexuality, like a conferences in human sexuality. And it seemed like you were still working on that same topic, which is herpes stigma. Um, and this is a topic that a lot of listeners have wanted and asked for more about. So like, I've talked about STIs on the podcast before, but like, I think it's important that we have a herpes episode. So let's talk about herpes. (laughs) I mean, I know that people can look up like what herpes is online, but I would love to hear your impression, just a little bit of a summary of what is herpes? What are some of the different kinds of herpes that, you know, folks can experience and and how does it show up for people, you know, physically, emotionally? So herpes is, um, it's a skin infection and it's a virus. It's also a member of the chickenpox family, uh, Epstein-Barr virus, and a bunch of other viruses that are household names. And the herpes that we know of is typically when we think herpes, we think of genital herpes. Now, genital herpes could be herpes simplex virus type 1, or it could be herpes simplex virus type 2. The other manifestation of herpes simplex type 1 occurs on the mouth, so otherwise known as a cold sore or oral herpes. So the stigma, interestingly, really hits home for people with genital herpes. And something else that I find really interesting is that even for people who have genital HSV-1, there's still a really big stigma around those that have HSV-2. There's this idea that it's somehow worse. And there's actually not as much data on genital HSV-1 that I found. And that's something that my followers are constantly asking me for. Like, Emily, like, please give me more data on transmission rates or this or that. But it's just not there yet, uh, despite how common it really is. And so when people ask, you know, what, what is it like being someone who has herpes or what does that look like? Many people are asymptomatic, don't even know that they have it. Some people just have one outbreak and don't have any recurrences in their future, or they don't have any symptomatic recurrences, meaning that they shed the virus uh, without symptoms. Some people mistake a herpes lesion for a razor burn or an ingrown hair or something else. And some doctors even just give visual diagnoses and are incorrect in their diagnoses and people are left with a mystery of, oh my gosh, what happened to me or what happened to my partner? You know, did did they cheat? Did they do this? So herpes is a really, it can be kind of sneaky. And interestingly, in Greek, it means to creep. That's where herpes came from, the language. So it is, it can be a sneaky virus, but it's, it's the, it's really is the stigma that hits home for people. That is the debilitating factor, especially when you're diagnosed with something like that. Yeah. So just like what you were saying to clarify for folks, the designation of one or two is more about the, the type of virus, but both can occur on genital or oral. Right. And I actually, it's, 
so it's rare for HSV2 to be oral. I actually haven't read any cases in my own research. That doesn't mean that there isn't someone out there that doesn't have HSV2. I Oral HSV2, I just haven't come across it. It HSV2 generally prefers the genitals, um, and the virus sits in the nerve ganglia down there in your lower back, whereas in oral herpes, it's right at the neck. But oral, mm-hmm. oral HSV1 or general HSV1, um, those are the ones that really can flip-flop. So if, you know, if you're giving oral sex to a partner and you have cold sores, you might not even know that cold sores are herpes or could be transferred to the genitals just because our sex education just sucks and doesn't tell you that. Um, so, you know, a lot right. of monogamous couples are left with this question of, oh my gosh, you cheated on me or what happened here? What didn't you tell me? Totally. And wh- why do you think there's still such a fucking stigma? Because I don't think I've met somebody in a really long time that doesn't have some kind of herpes. Like I have HSV, I, I have HSV one orally and everyone I know pretty like there'll be times where I'm like, Oh, like I can't, someone will ask for like a sip of my drink and I'll say like, Oh, just so you know, I, I can sometimes get cold sores and they'll be like, Oh, me too. Like, I, like everyone I talk yeah. to has herpes. And it's, it's so funny because even the people that have cold sores, there's, there's always some kind of viral internet posts that I see or social media posts, even sometimes by nurses or clinicians that, um, really downplay oral herpes like well that's better you know that's better than genital herpes um and like, a lot oh, of folks at least it's just oral herpes <laughs> yeah i hate that it's this hierarchical thing um but even there's i saw a post on facebook last year and i mean it went viral this girl was talking about how cold sores are normal and someone commented like well actually you know that's herpes and she's like no no it's not herpes and even on my instagram page and in my writing no matter how many times i write you know Cold sores are herpes. Cold sores equal herpes. This is herpes. Like, people don't want to believe it's herpes. There's something in that word. You know, when we think of herpes, uh, we think genitals. And for me, that represents a lot of sexual shame in, if we're considering, you know, the United States in American culture. I know some countries around the world are a bit different, but universally, it seems it's a larger, it's a large stigma just for genital herpes and sexual shame. And I find it so interesting here because sex is everywhere, um, you know, and we're so eager to get into bed with people and take our take off our clothes and have at them. But when do we see discussions of how to have safer sex or in our sex education? When did anyone ever tell us how normal it was to get herpes or an STI? Because I never got that. And when I was diagnosed, right. it, that's when I really realized this is a really big problem. Even for the people I know that are sort of sex positive or have had more sex education, even when they have gotten herpes diagnosis, they still go through a level of like personal shame and stigma, even though they've been challenging that narrative for some time. Even in some of my courses at Widener, there have been colleagues that you can see just the look on their face, you know, like if I've gone to give a presentation or if I present some material and I've even had some approach me like, I don't understand your work, you know, like they're like, well, I don't feel fear herpes because I fear herpes. I fear herpes because of, you know, healthcare reasons and this and that. Um, and it's, it's really interesting just to hear people's processes and, you know, how their religion, their culture, their upbringing plays into that as well. There's a really but good think, graphic that I that I saw on your Instagram that says um, layers of herpes and STI stigma. Oh um, yeah, and I would encourage folks to go to go look at it. I'll post on social media, but it basically is a circle with you, the words "you" being in the middle, and then uh, going outward from there. There's media and popular culture, school, religion, and families, sex education, and legislation and policy, and th- these are all the things that impact this stigma. So, like, what? I would love to break some of those down if you're sure if you're open to it. But like starting just, maybe with media and popular culture, like how is that impacting the way we view herpes? So what do we see about herpes in the media? Most people can come up with a movie line or a line in a TV show that's like, at least it's not herpes. What is it? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, except for herpes. Except herpes, that'll yep. stay with you forever. The hangover. I remember yep. that exactly. Yep, that one. Uh, so more things like that. And even, um, 
what is it like the cold sore abriva it's a it's a company and they treat cold sores right they have i don't know what's in their treatment but they have commercials on tv and on the internet and even they they had on snapchat they had a cold sore filter where you could put like it would put herpes on your face um and then i it was i emailed them about it because i thought it was very problematic but why like as a as an advertisement like <laughs> yeah to show people that their product cleared it away i thought it was so strange i'm like this is a really strange way to market to customers but this is what people are this is what people are seeing um and you know even in government guidelines and pamphlets like if you're diagnosed with herpes you get this you get a pamphlet likely and it's, you know, a bunch of smiling people, but it just, it doesn't seem real. We have no real representations of what people with herpes look like or what that experience is really like. People say, oh, you'll find love, you'll find this. But then you have all these contradictions saying how terrible herpes is or, you know, there's so much fear around what it is, what its symptoms are, what that means for sex and dating and love. And even, you know, I how mean, many movies? That is true from The Hangover when they said, like, you will have it forever as a virus. But, like, are there any actual, like, concerns besides, like, topical look or how it might feel sometimes that are actually dangerous? No. And it makes me think what's absent in our media and culture about herpes and STIs, really. Like, how often... Do we see couples in movies before a sex scene say, well, hold up, like, when was your last STI screening? Or, you know, I have herpes. When have we ever really seen that represented anywhere? We don't. Totally. And in addition, so in addition to like media and popular culture stuff, like you were saying, the, the next layer of this graphic that, that Emily made talks about school, religion, and families. Um, and earlier you were saying like people in classes had, people in some of those classes at Widener had some different perspectives. So like, what are we seeing or lacking in school and our communities around herpes stuff? And families, I mean, just, um, you know, this school and sex education kind of feed into each other in that area. But um, I think families and religion are really big because if, you know, you, you don't, I've never heard a family member say, oh, well, I have herpes. You say, well, I've got a cold sore. And, you know, when I was growing up, people would always say, oh, well, so your aunt has a cold sore and they give so-and-so a cold sore. Like it's a very normal thing. And that's how herpes transmission works. But you don't have that. Most people I know, unless they're super sex positive all-stars in um, Instagram and beyond, most people I know don't share how normal STIs are with their children um, or about herpes transmission in that way. Religion, you know, if you're growing up in a family with sexual or religious shame, purity culture stuff, um, Erica Smith is a great resource. She does purity culture dropout uh, program. But it's Ooh, our belief cool. system. You should check her out. Uh, Erica Smith, sex ed on Instagram. But our belief systems, who we know ourselves to be, how often do we really sit and reflect with our layers, our layers of self? Um, you know, what did our families teach us about sex? What did our religions teach us about sex? What did, what did we hear in, you know, in our school groups from friends uh, and their family members as well? And what's interesting about the family stuff too is not even that parents won't like talk about herpes and cold sores, but like you can actively get cold sores, herpes, whatever you want to call them from family members in a non-sexual way. So whether it be yep. like a family member, like, you know, kissing their child or sharing a drink or whatever, like these are things that can happen before any sexual contact. And so actually the sharing a drink thing is largely a myth uh, because you can't, herpes doesn't live Ooh, long. tell me more. Air. Yeah, so herpes, I can send you the resource that I have, but there are no, no ca known cases of transmission through objects because it doesn't live as long. Um, so things like lipstick and that kind of stuff. So it's, it's mostly, it's a skin to skin kind of thing. Got it. So it really has to be like skin to skin touching as opposed to like somewhere you've put your skin that then somewhere else is putting their skin. Correct. It's interesting, right? 
I didn't another actually myth. know that because I'm still tra- I'm still trained to like tell folks because I'm I'm all about like the consent thing, and so I find that I like have right. to tell somebody before I offer to share my drink or lip balm or whatever it is. I will send you my resource after our call. <laughs> okay, we'll post it in the show notes for folks who are for folks who are curious about it. Yeah. So. What, what is the transmission process like for folks? And I mean, I think the obvious one we can point out is like, if you have an outbreak, you can transmit it, but you were also saying that there is asymptomatic shedding. So there's times when, you know, the virus uh, is always present within us, um, but you can't see an outbreak, but you can still transmit it. So how is that happening? Right. So let's go through, I have another graphic on Instagram and I'll kind of talk through this as well. So the first episode of herpes, this is the quote-unquote initial outbreak, and it typically happens one to two weeks after transmission, and the average incubation period is four days after exposure to someone who has herpes. So now that's just the average that, you know, someone could have an outbreak within, you know, one to two weeks from that initial exposure. That could be, that's an exposure to skin. So exposure to the genitals, to someone's testicles, uh, vulva, um, butt, that kind of stuff. Or if you're kissing, you know, if you put your mouth on someone's genitals on on a vulva or penis, that's, and they have an outbreak and they don't know it, that can happen there too. So this, this is typically the one, the initial outbreak is typically the most severe. So a lot of people will report flu-like symptoms and headaches uh, in addition to painful lesions as well. And that's kind of the stereotypical thought when people say they have herpes. You think of these awful, monstrous lesions. And they're, they're usually just little white clusters. Um, and they can also appear as an ingrown hair or look like, you know, just like a bump. Um, and some people have more, they look like razor scars. So after the first episode, people will have, well, they, they can either have recurring outbreaks, meaning they'll have, continuous outbreaks, not all the time, but just outbreaks after the first one, or they could be asymptomatic. So people that have recurrent outbreaks uh, typically start to recognize what the symptoms are of their outbreaks. It's called prodrome. And I don't know if you have this, if you get cold sores, um, but there's usually there's like a tingle that you'll feel is the best way that I've seen it described. Uh, and they typically I get, last I get really confused for myself and because I don't experience an intense feeling of that. So I often yeah. find it, I don't know if anyone out there listening has this experience, but I get definitely anxious about it because it's something that my, that my partner knows about that I would share with like other partners right. and things like that. But, um, you know, there's times where your lips are dry or you get a cut in your lip because of like you were sleeping right. and breathing through your mouth or whatever it is. And so I'm like, I don't know what this is. So I find myself like erring on the side of caution. Extra cautious. Yeah, which I guess is sometimes good, but it also feels so limiting over the top sometimes when I'm like, I just want to suck my boyfriend's dick. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And I mean, you could even have an asymptomatic outbreak because people, again, I don't know the statistics on this because it's hard to find them, um, but asymptomatic shedding. There are studies... There are more studies, at least the studies that I've seen are specifically with individuals with HSV2, um, and the researchers have a way to measure their activity. I'm not sure scientifically what that looks like, but they have a method to measure if these individuals were asymptomatically shedding, you know, how treatment methods helped discordant, you know, couples if one partner has herpes and one partner didn't, um, and what that looks like. But it, yeah, it sounds like you're almost living in a, a place of fear, which um, which it's it's like I hear I like hear you breaking stigmas, but I'm like also like, ooh, is that like your own personal stigma? Like, what is this? Totally. I mean, that brings me to the the next layer on your graphic, which is sex education experience. So even for someone oh, that gosh. has had like myself, who has had potentially good education, at least now in my later years as a sex therapist, like I have this education and the stuff that you're talking about. And I still feel that fear of what will happen if I give this to my partner. Right. That's so interesting. And that's a, that's a really common question that people ask, like, what happens if I give it to my partner? What, what will happen in our relationship? Um, 
and I have, you know, I have friends that have, that are married and monogamous and, you know, one partner gave it to the other and they're like, this is what it is now. It's fine. (laughs) They're like, now I don't have to worry about it. Um, that kind of thing. And, you know, there are people in the herpes community that have written some articles and I can share one with you. Uh, one of my friends and colleagues, she gave her husband herpes, general herpes, but they, you know, she writes about how it brings them closer. So I, I think it's, it's learning how to spin it and kind of, it's really unlearning is what it all is when it comes to stigma. I'm curious, what was your before Widener, before sex therapy, what was your sex education like? I've always been interested in, in sex as a, as a field. So I think I had some sex ed in high school, but it definitely wasn't super helpful or informative. Definitely not a lot of like pleasure talk, but still the topic of sex was something that I talked about pretty openly with my parents, but I wouldn't say that um, they had a lot of information. They were more just like open in that I could kind of come to them Mm -hmm. and talk to them about things. But one of my first larger experiences about sex education was my sister had a babysitter who um, she made a rule that I then adapted for myself that she wouldn't hook up with anyone more than kissing or like hand stuff unless the person was willing to get tested. And so I, I sort of liked that because to me, it wasn't, it wasn't just about like avoiding STIs. It was about um, establishing like a safer sex conversation. Communication, with a potential yeah. Partner. Yeah, communication, which I wouldn't have called it in high school. Um, but now that's what I consider it as. But I do think the way I first viewed it was definitely more from a fear stigma place of, yeah. oh, this is to protect myself. Yep. Yeah, I, I was Catholic schooled from preschool to high school. And my only real sex education came in a class called life skills. And that, you know, they divided by male and female and we got a puffy hair lady mm-hmm. and shoulder pads telling us don't have sex until you're married. And it's only for kids. Um, and then I really didn't, mm-hmm. I really didn't get anything until honestly college. Um, so I had a very fear abstinence based place from my sex education. Here I am. I'm, I'm hoping all my Catholic schools are so proud of me. <laughs> when you did find out that you had herpes, like what were some of your initial first reactions? I, re- I remember mine so clearly. It was, it was definitely like trauma response. Yeah, it's I, literally who will love me. That was the, the thing that I said, like who will ever love me? Um, you know, now my sex life is over. Like I can't have, I can't have sex. No one will want me. I'm undesirable. Um, this sucks, like just a very, it was through, I view it through a very partnered centered lens. Like I wasn't really focused on myself. Like I was focused on acceptance of an other, um, you know, like, and even for me, my pleasure, like I, I had no interest in sex or anything sexual. And as someone who studies sex and is a sexual being, um, my response was to numb. And I, I find that a lot with people. and some people, some people, unfortunately, don't disclose their status. And that's one of the one of the biggest reasons that people don't disclose is because of fear that, you know, that their partner will reject them. Um, sometimes that's for safety reasons, you know, like abusive relationships, things like that. Yeah, that's something that I sometimes feel conflicted about when I'm working with clients um, who get some kind of positive diagnosis, whether it be herpes or something else. And, you know, like I tell them and, and try to tell myself, even though the stigma still comes up for me is, you know, if you're sexually active, you're probably going to get an STI and it like doesn't have to be a big deal. Um, and a big question that they have is when do I tell a partner? So like, if you're just hooking up with somebody, if you're starting to date somebody, like, what advice do you have for folks about when to communicate that and how? So I, Especially I if you're worried think, that like, people won't accept you. So I don't think that there's a right, t- right time for everyone. Um, I know that a lot of people will, if they're just looking for casual sex or hookups and they're on apps, a lot of people will put it in their bio. You know, I have herpes or HSV2 positive, whatever. But I also make the clarifier and distinction that even though you put that in your bio, people might not know what that means. So you still need to have that follow-up conversation. 
Um, I, I think in-person conversations are great for building intimacy and closeness, but I also am realistic and realize that this is a really scary thing for a lot of people to talk about and confront. So for me, you know, if it's over a text message, good for you. Like as long as it's out there. Um, and you know, now there are so many Instagram accounts and disclosure. There's even my, one of my friend has a disclosure guide, um, that can give you a few templates. And I have a few as well that just get the conversation started and make it, make it more, make it more than just the herpes talk. Like disclosure isn't just a you thing. It's a mutual thing, right? Like you're disclosing to your partner, Hey, you know, I had my last STI screening and I also have herpes. And I'm wondering like, when was yours? Like, I'd love to get down and fuck, but I just want to know. And that's your right too. Like, it's not, it's not just about you and your status. It's about your sexual health as well as your, your, all of your partners. Um, what yeah. else was there was something else? And knowing say, that the but... person that you like want to maybe be with is somebody who can have those conversations, hopefully, or that you can feel comfortable right. to have those chats with. So I think it's a good, for lack of a like double entendre, like good screening process <laughs> that if somebody doesn't respond in a way where they're like willing to to chat about this and, and openly communicate and they're on top of their health, that maybe that's right. not someone you want to fuck. Exactly. And if they can't talk about this, what about like communication during sex? You know, how, like how, how am I doing? Like, what do you like? Are you able to tell me what you like? Are you able to talk about your boundaries, your limits, um, you know, your fantasies, what kind that kind of communication, you know, sometimes it's not always sexy saying, can you move your left leg this way? Or can you move your mouth up, you know, this way? But it's, if, even if you're just hooking up, you're, I'm assuming you're hoping for pleasure in some way or another with your partners. So being able to communicate that is key. On the flip side, though, I do have clients who haven't disclosed or who come in and are processing like shame and guilt yeah. of not having disclosed because they were scared of being judged or had shame. Um, so even though, I mean, shoot, I would want to know if my partner had herpes and, and if they knew, you know, I would want them to disclose that. But I also like have understanding and empathy for not wanting to say anything. Oh, for sure. I totally get that. Um, and it, it also makes me wonder, you know, did they actually get herpes from their partner? Like, are, you know, if they're in a monogamous relationship um, and their partner just didn't know, like, or, you know, I, I just imagine that's such a really, it's a weighted burden to carry around that shame, especially if you're in a partnership with someone, you know, and you feel like you're hiding something. So I can imagine how um, that carries with them throughout their days. This episode is sponsored by The Intensity by Pour Moi and Trivia Star. Pour Moi is offering our listeners an additional $25 off of The Intensity when you go to pourmoi.com and enter promo code S&S at checkout. You can use this code along with any other discount code on their website. And Trivia Star is offering you 2,500 coins and 500 gems when you download and play. Just go to the Apple or Google store and search for Trivia Star. Okay, a bit more about these awesome products and discounts. The Intensity by Pour Moi is an intimate health and stimulation device. It's a sexual health and stimulation device that tightens and tones your pelvic floor muscles and your vagina. It combines pelvic floor health and with both internal and external vibration can also bring you a lot of pleasure, like a trip to the gym for your pelvic floor. I've tried it and it's super fun and I always feel really accomplished after I do it, which I guess I feel after any masturbation session, but this makes me feel like I don't have to do any other workouts for the day. It's like having a trainer in you. Again, Poor Moi is offering our listeners an additional $25 off of the intensity when you go to pourmoi.com and enter promo code S&S at checkout. Again, you can use this code along with any code on their website. That's $25 off on top of any ongoing promotions when you go to pourmoi.com and use promo code S&S. pourmoi.com code S&S. And then Trivia Star uh, is a little more lighthearted, I guess, and is perfect for those of you missing Trivia Bar Nights. So Trivia Star is a free mobile quiz game that's entertaining and challenging. I've been playing a lot of virtual trivia sessions with friends, and it's definitely a good distance activity, too. You can choose from all sorts of categories like music, sports, movies, TV, animals, celebs. There's over 60 categories to choose from, so there's always more trivia to explore. The questions get harder as you go, but if you get stuck, you don't have to worry, especially if you download 
code now because you can use those free coins and gems to get a hint and beat the level. So right now, Trivia Star is offering you those 2,500 free coins and 500 gems when you download and play. Just go to the Apple or Google Store and search for Trivia Star. Again, search Trivia Star and enjoy 2,500 coins and 500 gems. Download Trivia Star for free today. Now back to the episode. What did it take for you to get to a place to be so out and open and proud about it? So I went through a breakup with the person that gave me herpes. Um, and I wrote about it, and I'm happy to share that piece with you as well. Uh, but it was a week before Christmas, and I was, it was over a Snapchat text message, and I would just sat there thinking, like, what have I been doing the last six months of my life? You know, like, I let a really great internship kind of go down the tank because I was just so deep in not necessarily isolation, but like I said, numbing. Um, I used alcohol as a coping mechanism. I thought about seeing a therapist and was like, nope, no one's ever going to stand, ever going to understand me or what I'm going through because I was in those layers of stigma and shame. Um, so, but that breakup really it forced me into self-reflection. Um, and I had been following the work of Ella Dawson and I was like, you know what? Like, I'm, I'm just going to do this. I'm like, what, what is it going to hurt me? You know, like I'd, I'd been really well received by my friends and family members after I disclosed to them that I had herpes just for a support piece. Um, and like you, you know, some friends are like, oh, I have it too. Like, cool. Like you're still you. Um, so I think having a really strong support system helped me. My friends are, were, and still are the world to me because of that. And I don't know if they ever know it. Um, and that's kind of when I realized like, oh shit, I really don't know anything about herpes or STIs. Um, and so I spent a lot of time researching. I spent into the nights at two and three o'clock in the morning. And if people know me, they know I'm a morning person. I'm not a late night girl. So I really immersed myself in literature, in forums, in blog posts, and anything I could get my hands on. And that's when I started kind of developing, you know, using my knowledge of what I, what I had in my undergrad, as well as personal experience to build on where I am now. I mean, I wouldn't recommend for everyone just to like willy nilly stay up till like 2.30 a.m. like searching because no. I feel like a lot of the herpes <laughs> stuff online, you'll just get like the worst cases of outbreaks and like freak yourself yeah, the fuck out. Yeah, don't so, do like, Google pictures. Use research. Yeah, use research from like Emily's Instagram or some of the people she's referencing, like research and information that's actually informed and helpful. <laughs> my friend actually, his my friend Courtney, his name is... Courtney Brame, and he has a nonprofit called Something Positive for Positive People, uh, of which I sit on the board of directors. And that organization's goal is to get people with herpes and other STIs the therapy they need. So if you are someone who doesn't have access to therapy or who is looking for therapy, uh, that's a really great organization as well as another podcast to check out. I like what you said, though, and, and this kind of fits into like the last layer of this graphic that I was referencing, but that's like legislation and policy. Um, and just acknowledging like, I, I myself am a white presenting woman. If you've been listening to the podcast, you probably know that. Um, and like I had, when I got diagnosed with HSV1 orally, like I had the opportunity to get medication if I want to. I had a therapist. I had folks that I could talk to and like process about this um, and I imagine my race also fits into this as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, like, what have you seen in terms of how the stigma is different for folks across the race and or gender spectrum? So something that I really am passionate about speaking to is the lack of representation, uh, of LGBTQ folks. You know, the guidelines are not inclusive. They just aren't. Um, and I actually wrote a piece a couple years back and interviewed queer women on their experiences of living with herpes. Um, a lot of people saying, oh, well, you can just make this work. This is just what we have. Like, I'm sorry, I don't have anything for you. So, you know, you're already feeling shame because of this virus. So then add another layer of otherness to it. And it's a whole other stigma to overcome, really. You're more susceptible to get HIV if you have HSV. 
So I, a lot of men who have sex with men, especially black men who have sex with men, there's a lot of literature about HIV and herpes there. I don't know data or statistics. But something I really drive home in my work is just because available testing is there, just because it exists, just because you see online STI tests or screening tests doesn't mean it's accessible to everyone. Um, they're, you know, they vary by price. People can be turned away by healthcare providers. You know, even in Philly, there are some centers that are just very uppity. They're snotty. It's a bunch of mostly white people um, in certain areas. And I can't say I've seen them turn people away, but I wouldn't be surprised by it, unfortunately. I've also seen really a lot of inconsistencies around herpes or HSV testing. Um, oh there my God, it's awful. Testing. Yeah. So like help me understand that. Cause there are some places that don't offer Like if you say, I want an STI screening, they won't automatically include that. There are some places that say you can get a blood test screening for HSV, even when you don't have an outbreak. And then I've also heard that that some people say that that's inaccurate and you have to have an active outbreak to test. Like what, what is going on? So that's all really quite, it's all true. It's just different um, perspectives of health. So I think, you know, you and I understand how little sexual health knowledge, you know, around sex, at least human sexuality, uh, medical school students really get. Uh, I think Lay Miller did a, did a study or reported on a study. I think it's less than 10 10 hours or 10 to 20 hours somewhere in there. But you can't you can't visually diagnose herpes, right? It might look like herpes, but to actually confirm it, you need a test. Whether that's if you have a symptomatic outbreak, if you're having symptoms, that's a viral culture. And when I got a herpes outbreak, my I was able to get the viral culture as well as have a blood test. Um, and so my viral culture turned up positive and my blood test turned up negative. So, of course, all of my Googling and prodding doctors, and they're like, well, this means it's a recent infection. So they recommend, you know, in 12 weeks, come back, and you should have developed antibodies to the virus now, and we can, you know, tell you what type you have. Not that it mattered, but to me at that point, it probably did. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I went back 12 weeks later, and of course, I tested positive for herpes. Uh, So for me, you know, I was only with one partner at that time, so it was easy for me to determine who it was. Um, And I will say I had a lot of anger for that person at the time, but I think that anger came from a place of a lack of knowing about these inconsistencies in testing, Um, you know, not knowing that herpes isn't something that's recommended to be tested for. Um, It's not included in standard STI panels. Some doctors will discriminate and say, well, you're not sleeping with someone who has it and it's just better off if you don't know. Um, a lot of my followers say, you know, my doctor told me I asked for it and they said, no, it's something that happens, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and, but that's, I imagine where the, the lack of sex education fits in, but also the like race and gender component, because uh-huh. a lot of times when you're going in for an STI test, depending where you're going, they get like a little bit of a sexual history from you. And like you said, yeah. maybe based on their own subjective beliefs on like, how slutty you are for lack of a better word. Like that's what they're going to test you for. So like, it's totally subjective bullshit. (laughs) Yep. Uh, And I hate it. And um, you know, some tests are better than others. For example, uh, I know that you should get an IgG test versus an IgM test. IgM tends to have a higher rate of false positives that also doesn't mean that IgG tests don't have pulse positives as well. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's does it really matter? Not for your health necessarily, but for your knowledge and for being honest and sharing your status with sexual partners and knowing how to take care of yourself if and when you do get an outbreak, I think it matters. That's a hard line to walk because it's like on one hand we're saying, yes, it matters, like be on top of this, know your status, right. and on the other it's like, but it doesn't have to be a big deal. <laughs> right, exactly. It's hard. And I think, you know, it's herpes isn't something that needs to be mandated. It's not a report. So when the CDC releases their STI surveillance report, herpes isn't included because it's people don't have to report it. So if someone is going in for for a routine STI test or if they're suspecting, you know, herpes in that moment, what do you suggest 
or how, how can we advocate for ourselves in that testing room if the doctor doesn't even know what's uh, so, possible? I would say not to put more work on people, especially those that are um, gender um, and race minorities, but do your research. Um, you know, look at the guidelines, say, hey, you know, I understand that this, you know, print it out. I understand that this says this, but, you know, I'm having sex with someone that has herpes or I was with a partner that had herpes or I really just want to know my herpes status because I have a friend that has it or, you know, be honest, come with research and say, this is why. Um, say, I, I understand that this isn't recommended, but I want to know for myself and I'm prepared for the answer, whether that's yes or no. And I want this test and... You know, if if you have the luxury of saying that, um, because that is a privilege just to choose a test or to ask for a certain test and afford a certain test. Um, but really do your research, be prepared. And like you said, it's it's really about self-advocation. So I can imagine then that's another, like you said, layer of burden for folks who are already experiencing some kind of minority stress. Yes. Especially the thing that really got me when I was interviewing uh, those women was the amount of doctors that just said, well, it doesn't exist yet. And the amount of doctors in this world that are just continuing to say, it doesn't exist and I'm not going to do anything about it. It doesn't exist, meaning we don't have enough research and I'm not going to do anything about it. Correct. They don't care enough to advocate for their own clients, you know, their own patients. Mm -hmm. oh, what, what other issues are we seeing in like legislation and, and policy healthcare around stuff like this? So the guidelines are a big one, but I always point to just the history of America because women have always, women specifically have, and black women as well, have been seen um, as promiscuous and the ones who are poisoning, you know, the American troops with venereal disease, as it was once called. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a really great book by Scott Stern and it, it talks about the U.S. American plan in which, you know, women could be arrested on this. They were trying to combat venereal disease and gonorrhea and syphilis and all that. And so the government released this plan. And because they felt that the venereal disease came from all of these women, women could be arrested if they, you know, looked like they were sexual, if they were wearing lipstick, if they were out late, if they were dressed, you know, their shoulder was showing, um, and so they went into these treatment facilities and were injected with mercury as a treatment. Now, we know that doesn't work, but that just shows, at least for me, how deeply rooted our sense of sexual shame, especially as it relates to women um, and STIs, is in our country. And it's something that I didn't even know until I read this book a couple of years ago. Oh, that's so disgusting. That just like gives me the chills all over. Yeah, so like a hundred years ago, and we're still we're still in this stigma, and we're and I, you know even for men, I you know there's not to say that men don't experience shame when they get a herpes diagnosis, but it's kind of like you hear like with the boys, it's like oh you got gonorrhea, like gotta go take care of that, like oh you you fucking some girl, like who are you fucking this week, man, you know like it's it's always the shame is typically on the women, um, if that in that scenario. Yeah. And just, I mean, that's still something that's continued today is like looking at somebody and making assumptions about who or what, if there's someone who yeah. looks quote unquote dirty. Right. Yeah. And it's just like when, like when I was diagnosed, it's like, I looked at myself in the mirror and that's when I confronted my own STI stigma because at, at one point in my life, I was someone who thought that people that got STIs were bad and sluts and this and that. And I looked in the mirror and I'm like, I, I don't recognize myself in my, in this stereotype of what I thought this person was. And then I started to do my own unlearning and realized, oh, like it's, it's everyone, you know, it's, it's not just certain types of people that get herpes. Um, herp, like I like to say herpes is a human thing. There's no type of person that it likes. Yeah. It doesn't discriminate. Mm -mm. Unlike our healthcare system. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> yes. Um, before we start to wrap up, um, I, I think a lot of the folks listening to the podcast 
are somewhat sex positive and look, this might be some things they're hearing for the first time. So are there some other like popular myths and things that people are still believing about herpes that you want to clarify? Like you were saying, no matter how many times you post about blah, 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 people are still saying cold sores aren't herpes or things like that. That's a big one. Uh, I will say cheating is another big one. Um, you know, if you're if you're in a monogamous relationship and one partner tests positive for herpes or they get an outbreak, you know, you automatically people thinking they cheated on me. I'm not saying they, you know, they that's not a possibility, but if just that's not an automatic signifier that someone um, betrayed you. Yeah, so it could it could be that they were asymptomatic for a long time and the virus was right. not showing up, um, or that they never got tested for it before. They had cold sores and didn't know that cold sores could be transmitted through the genitals. Um, uh, herpes mm-hmm. is only transmitted through the myth that herpes is only transmitted if there's an outbreak. You can get it asymptomatically. So just, you know, you can't tell that someone has herpes just by looking at them. Like you can't look at someone on the street and be like, oh, they, they look like they're someone that has herpes. Or, you know, if you're somehow for some reason, looking and expecting someone's genitals, you can't tell that they have herpes just by looking at them. Um, Do you know what the likelihood of transmitting it during asymptomatic times are? For HSV2, there are are transmission rates available, um, but it's also dependent on, are you taking antivirals? Are you using any barrier methods like internal or external condoms? with the knowledge that a condom isn't a hundred percent preventative at reducing it at eliminating transmission um, because it's skin to skin. So a condom doesn't cover a penis uh, entirely. Yeah. So there's another uh, myth buster, I guess for, for (laughs) y'all. And then um, a lot, a big one, I'd say that it's, you know, it's better to have one type versus the other, I'd say is a really big one. Um, you know, sometimes I, I sit with myself and I'm like, well, you know, I, I try to put myself in the other position, you know, like what would it be like if I had oral herpes as opposed to genital herpes? Um, and for like some right now, I know a lot of people are experiencing, um, masks can be a trigger for oral herpes. So I'm like, oh, like a lot of people are having an end stress just with COVID or oral outbreaks right now. Um, and I'm like, I wonder, like, how would that affect my self-esteem? Would it be more? Would it be less? So that's something I sit with. But I think I think there are pieces to both. But I think it's really coming to a place where we acknowledge we got to take the awkwardness out of herpes, like the word. We, you know, we got to remove the stigma just from the genitals because I feel, I feel like it's just, it's our discomfort with sex. And it makes me so, it gets me especially for people that are engaging in sex um, and having sex and are still in this process of unlearning. Um, sometimes it's just really shocking to experience on like, especially on the internet. Like I used to, people are like, how do you feel when you see people devalue your work or say things? And I'm like, I, I don't know how you can dispute fact um, like the cold sores or herpes thing. So, you know, that, that that's fine. But I just, I, I'm now in a place where I just look at what other people are saying about it. And I'm just like, I don't want to, I've not evolved, but I just, it's hard for me to sit in that stigma shell sometimes of the world. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, I, I think you wrote an article about this, so I, I want people to like go and, and read it from the source and, and support your work. But let's say someone listening just got the diagnosis or just got tested for the first time and um, they do have HSV one or two. If you're having an outbreak, self-care, and, you know, even if you're not having an outbreak, self-care, but, you know, whether that's taking a bath um, or, you know, buying buying something that you've wanted, if you have that ability, um, you know, a new pair of shoes or a new dress, something to make you feel good about yourself, do something for yourself, um, you know, light some candles, listen to some music, lay in a bed full of pillows or blankets self-care um part of self-care just like is if you got any other kind of virus yeah take care of yourself and that's also you know while i'd like to alleviate the stigma of every person that's diagnosed with herpes immediately that's not the reality so like if you want to cry cry let it out that's therapeutic 
Um, you know, if you want to go for a run, go for a run, do something that's part of self-care, something for release. Um, but I'd also recommend being mindful about, you know, engaging in substances. Cause like I said, I became uh, dependent on alcohol through that period of my life. Um, so finding support through friends, support groups, listening to podcasts, following sex positive Instagrams, things like that. Um, two, you're fucking worth it. Like you are fucking worth it. You are worth pleasure from yourself. You are worth love and pleasure from other people. You are worth community support. You are worth the world. Like this diagnosis isn't your definition. This is just a virus. Like you said, when people feel that they're in a place where they want to learn more to really like educate themselves. Yeah. So, I mean, like you said, giving space for like the feelings to come out, Yeah. you might still be in a place of dealing with the stigma, asking yourself where in those layers does that stigma come from? Um, and finding community. Yeah. We heal in community. And there are some great online support groups too now. Oh, where, where can folks find that? Um, so I will also send these to you. There are, there's a women's group as well as an all uh, genders group that my friend Heather runs and she is HSV in the city on Instagram. And then my friend Ray does an all women's group. She's positive results on Instagram. So those are two that I know of. Um, and there are other herpes communities on Facebook and beyond. And how can people follow what you're doing and, and join your community of work? Sure. Yeah. So you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at sex education. That's sex E-L-D education. Those are my initials. And you can find me on my website at emilydepass.com and you can submit an inquiry there. But please know that I am not a medical professional and I cannot provide individual advice, but you are more than welcome to reach out. And sadly, you probably know more, as you were saying, than a lot of medical professionals. <laughs> but thank you so much. Uh, thanks for joining me. <laughs> Oh my gosh, this was lovely. I had so much fun. I'm, I'm so grateful for you and, and the work that you do. And uh, thanks listeners for tuning in. And again, if you want to follow what I'm doing at Sluts and Scholars, I'm on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars, uh, available anywhere you get your podcasts. And it's always super helpful if you have a minute to go leave a rating and review wherever you do listen to the show. Uh, thanks so much and talk to you all next week.